Welcome back to the Access to Education podcast, where we talk about all things having to do with learning disabilities and learning challenges. When our children struggle at a young age, finding a person who can care for and engage them is important. Often, that first person is an early childhood specialist or early childhood educator. Their knowledge of understanding of children in their very young years are second to none. These teachers play an important role in guiding and supporting our little ones in the school system. Today on the podcast, I'm bringing one of those knowledgeable experts and educators to you. Today, DJ is joining me to chat about the role of the early childhood specialist. She is an early childhood specialist herself who has worked with young children for more than 20 years. In her work, she supports young children who may need a bit more support in entering the learning environment. She works closely with a team of people, including the parents, to ensure that all students feel included and successful at school. DJ, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Our, our avid listeners will know that I have already been on your podcast. So today yes. I get to be asking the questions. <laughs> your turn to be in the hot seat. I know you've been doing this for a while, but let's start with what led you to wanting to become an early childhood educator. It is not a job that is for everyone. No. You work with some wee tiny people. I don't do wee tiny. I need them to be a little bigger. But you people who do We Tiny, I, I applaud you. I am so grateful for you. But tell us a little bit about what an early childhood specialist is. Why did you want to be it? And kind of what your role is in the early stages of education. You bet. So an early childhood specialist is someone um, who has the degree in early childhood. And we focus on children anywhere from birth up to age eight. And so in, and then I went and got licensure so I could teach. So I can teach anywhere in in the United States and Colorado specifically, I can teach up to third grade. And I did that on purpose. First off, I don't want to deal with all the testing that is (laughs) (laughs) no, don't want that. And two little guys are kind of my bag. So I'm the oldest of seven kids. I have five younger brothers and a younger sister, and I have five children of my own, 12 grandchildren. My youngest brother was born the summer before my senior year in high school. So, you know, I've just kind of always been around little guys. My husband's the youngest of nine. And so when we put our families together, we have 70 nieces and nephews. And I have never, ever had a time in my life when I haven't been around little guys. And so I get them. And so that's been a lot of why I landed where I have. I truly believe that if we can give these little guys the confidence and the social skills and understanding their emotions and understanding how to move them and use them to their own benefit, how to get them excited about education and that science is their favorite thing to study and all of those things, then we've really got them off to a good head start. And I have seen so many other areas and classrooms and things where, you know, if a child is a problem, I've seen teachers say, oh gosh, she's here again. I was hoping he'd be absent, you know? And I'm like, shut up. (laughs) Don't ever say that. I've had 
so I've taught mostly kindergarten. I've had sometimes with a pre-K. I'm currently for this year and last year, I have had a pre-K with mostly special needs. We have a few typicals in there. And we've, I've got autism and I've got oppositional defiant and I've got hearing deficits and speech language issues and emotional issues with anxiety and all those other things that can come. I've got kids who have been through adoption and had horrible first two years of their life and they found a wonderful family and I've got more than one actually this year who this is their story and last year. And so they are not confident. They're not able to really connect with people because all the people that they connected with before hurt them or abandoned them. It's hard when they're little eh, to go through Isn't that. It? it is. It is it's heartbreaking. And so they react with, you know, all, all kids this age have big emotions. They all do, but when they've gone through something like this, they're a little bigger. <laughs> and so, but I've never had a child that I didn't absolutely adore and find joy in them coming to my classroom and connecting with them. And yeah, it takes a little extra effort sometimes, but okay. If that's what they need, that's what they need. Right. And so I just love that. I love the connection with the parents keeping them up to date on what's going on. And I'm a teacher that if you want to come in my class, come in my class. Like you don't even have to tell you if, you know, you're signing them in or dropping them off. And you say, Hey, I have some extra time today. Can I come in? Yeah, come on in. I'm fine with that because I want them to see their child and the environment they're in and how our classroom goes. And so so what is the role of the early childhood educator in a classroom? And I, and I ask that because I, I can, I look at my own kids and mm-hmm. granted we're up here in Canada, but there's not that much difference really in how we run our systems. They're, they're pretty parallel, but I mean, in the daycare program, uh, in the before and after school care, and even in the preschool program that my daughter was in, there was for sure, there was an early childhood. There were two, generally two early childhood educators in the classroom mm-hmm. in her before and after school care. There was for sure. But then if we think about, about our kindergarten classrooms up here in Ontario, we have generally, if it's a class of 15 or greater, you have a teacher and an ECE. What is the role of the ECE? What is it that they are meant to bring to the table that I guess in a classroom setting, if we're talking about mainstream classrooms, mm-hmm. goes above and beyond. But even in a, in a preschool program, pre-K programs, what is it that the ECE is bringing? Because you have an expertise in something that I, as a teacher, don't have. So can you talk right. a little bit about what it is that you have that, that makes your skill set so important? Well, a good ECE, and I'm qualifying that, will have a greater understanding of the string, the DNA of childhood development. And we also understand that not every child... the what comes next is actually fairly common and how, how kids will go from one step to the other, but the time it takes to go from that step to another, it varies widely. And so an ECE, a good ECE has an understanding that they can look at a child, be with the child, really not for long. It's not hard to 
figure out where you are, if you know what you're doing and saying, oh, this kiddo is here. So here's what we need to be looking at for signs for they're ready to move forward to the next step. And you may have another child that is the same age or maybe even a little younger that is already further along that path, along that string for whatever reason. And, and some kids have different talents than others. And so we're not threatened. We shouldn't be by, you know, the bad behavior, quote unquote, or the challenges that come from a child with huge emotions or an inability to express themselves the way that they need to. And we find that a lot in kindy, in pre-K. And I've always worked for a school district. I did spend a year, um, a couple of years ago, working at a child development center in a college. And then when COVID hit, you know, that was an interesting thing. And, but, you know, it's all a blessing because that landed me here and I'm loving this part of it too. So you're able to really look and see where the child is. If you're trying to push a child and say, oh, no, we're finished with this ladder. We're moving on to the next one, whether you're ready or not. That's such a disservice to the kids. And so an ECE, and it's a little different. It was, it's been a little different for me here in Colorado on how that worked, but would be someone who was able to understand Joey struggles during circle time. And so I know I can sit by him and give him those little reminders or give him the choices that he needs or, or Susie to be able to move forward in a productive and developmentally appropriate way. So I don't, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And I think the important piece for people to remember is that the early childhood educators are really the experts in the development of the young child. I, as a teacher in a kindergarten room, I am the expert in the academic portion in terms of curriculum Mm -hmm. and what needs to be taught, Mm -hmm. but I am not the expert as the teacher in understanding why it is Johnny is struggling necessarily to sit at the carpet. I might have my own opinion on why I think that that's the problem, right? but often I find the ECEs because you are really focused on just the child and just their needs. You Mm -hmm. are more attuned to it than I would be as the teacher, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to not only address the need of the child, but I'm also Mm -hmm. trying to address the need of the academic piece. Right. So I have to look at two pieces, not that you don't have an academic play or role. You absolutely do, but the, the requirements on us are different, right. In terms of the job level. Right. And because I'm licensed, so I was the teacher for kindergarten. Um, And so in the district that I was teaching in, so I had anywhere from 20 to 25 kids. And I always taught in the lowest income school in the district. So we had a lot of the poverty issues that are going on, a lot of violence around the kids, a lot of violent kids themselves. And, but I only had an aide, maybe two hours out of the day. And so I was left on my own for the rest of it. And so when you have in, I was in that environment, I had one little boy who would stab another child with a pencil because he didn't get the marker he wanted. And instead of having the social skills to say, oh, I wanted that marker or just even look and see, oh, there's another green one over here. (laughs) And so you're trying to get all of that done. And so it's a lot harder, I think, when you're in kindergarten, which I love kindergarten, I would, I would go back it in a heartbeat, but 
it's harder though when when at least here when you don't have the aids and the support and you have a larger class size and you're trying to work through all of it and and help these kids find you know a safe place in your eyes in your tone of voice in the way that you believe in kids and you always always have to let them know what it is that you find that's amazing about them and then, and then build on that. Right. So let's talk about kids with neurodiversity. Cause I know you yeah. currently are working with a group of kids and kind of the importance around kind of including them in programming and how you as an early childhood educator support the child who maybe is diagnosed, maybe isn't. I mean, if they're very young, if they're pre-K, chances are the diagnosis hasn't been done yet. The, the, mm-hmm. the challenges are present. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of being supported early on can have. So how, what is your role in supporting the students you work with now? And then mm-hmm. I know, and maybe you want to talk a little bit, a little bit about the sort of the, the makeup of students that you're currently working with, but Kind of how does your work with them as an early childhood educator, in your opinion, impact the overall outcome of their potential in in education moving forward? For me, especially when I'm doing the pre-K or the kindergarten, I see my key role, the most important thing I will do all year long is allow children to see themselves or help them see themselves as intelligent capable people. So a lot of times we'll get, and especially if there's a special needs, we'll get children who come in that are incapable of doing anything for themselves, not because they're physically incapable of doing it, but because they're sweet parents, bless their hearts, you know, oh, he needs extra help. He needs special things or she needs special things. They can't even put a jacket on by themselves, yet they're capable of it. Do you see what I mean? And so I always believe that a child will show me what they're capable of if I stand back and don't jump in to help them all of a sudden. And so if they're struggling or sometimes they won't even try. And so, you know, do you, do you know what the kindergarten flip is or the preschool flip with the oh, jacket? Yeah, it's the jacket. You They stand yeah. behind it and flip it on yep. the ground and flip it over their heads. Yeah, it's the best it way to put a jacket on. It's amazing. Isn't it? It's amazing. And so it's amazing for me to see when a child masters that skill and all of a sudden they can put their jacket on by themselves without someone helping them, they light up like a Christmas tree. They're so excited, you know? And so then let's move that excitement and feeling to, I am capable of writing a letter not I like dear John, but an A. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I know what you mean. Yeah. And so, or I can count to so-and-so I, I've had sweet parents come in and say, Oh, my child can count. They can count. They can count to three. <laughs> the expectation is right now they should be counting to 10 or 20, you know, um, at the beginning of the year. And so it's just funny how, when parents overtake care of them and, and they're the helicopter parent or whatever you want to call it, but they do too much for their child, even a child with special needs, right? 
they kind of further handicap their child. And so I'm one for standing back. So I've got a little girl this year, love this kid, but she is nonverbal. When we first got her, she would barely sit up by herself. She um, wasn't walking hardly at all with, I mean, and, and not at all independently, but we had to have, and, and she would only take even with a, like a walker device, she would only take maybe 10 steps and I'm done you know, and now to see her because we've worked with her and helped her and supported her. But there's also a time when we just kind of stand back and let her investigate and move around. She's going to, she's so close, man. She'll go and grab a chair on the back of the chair, pull herself up and then use that chair and push it around the room to get to where she wants to go. And all of this has happened in a time period of less than three months. That's the amazing thing about the stepping back. And it is hard to do. And I can imagine if you have a child with special needs in terms of a physical need or, or something mm-hmm. like that, that as a parent, mm-hmm. you feel this, this innate need to do and to, to protect and to provide for. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a really important piece that you're talking about, which is the idea that if we do it all for them, there is no need for them to try. Yes. And I think sometimes, you know, as parents, we, we worry that, well, if we don't do it, you know, something terrible is going to happen, but the something terrible might be that they actually learn how to do it right. In terms of they learn by mistake, they learn by trial and error and it's frustrating for them. And I've, I've watched some of these nonverbal kiddos in my own teaching when we step back and we let them, you know, fall a little bit and they get frustrated, they get angry and they act out and they do it. But at Mm -hmm. one point, all of that frustration and, and, what it takes to get to the thing. So like the putting on the jacket, for example, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it has to start from somewhere and it won't really start if we constantly do it for them. Exactly. Exactly. And so giving them the tool to say, solve a conflict and then stand back. And if they start yelling at it, someone else or whatever, don't jump right in to solve it. But sit back, give them a little, I mean, you're going to watch them closely. You don't want it to come to fisticuffs, right? But at the same time, it's okay if they're even yelling at someone a little bit because they're just learning how to negotiate. And then give it a little time. You can ease yourself in, but you don't come over to, oh, 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 what's going on here? But watching, and then when you see that frust, you you know when that frustration level is at a point where, okay, I got to step in. And then you come in and say, hey, guys, what's going on? Instead of ho, 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 let's stop. But asking questions and and then saying, in fact, just today, I had two little boys that were really upset with one another. And so I was talking to them and I said, you know, Joey, can you tell me what happened? And Mike is like, I'm like, oh, wait, we're going to listen to Joey first. And then when Joey's done, I want to hear everything you have to say. And Joey's going to listen to you. And that's a very hard, it's hard skill for adults. We want to jump in and scream and yell and tell our side of the story, but being able to sit and listen to someone else's point of view. And it was really interesting because I didn't even have to solve the problem myself. By the time Joey told his story and then Mikey was telling his story in the end, I said, so what's going on? And Joey's like, I'm going to go play. I'm like, okay. (laughs) 
funny how we ones go from like total utter it's the end of the world he hit me he said something mm-hmm. she did this she took my toy and within about five minutes they've moved on because it's already finished right yeah yeah and you'll see them their very best friend is the one they'll fight with the most yeah always yeah yeah so i'll get like a mom will say oh so joey is saying all these things like mikey's hitting him and mikey's saying bad words and i'm like yeah and it goes both ways (laughs) yeah you know they're both like and i use the term with parents a lot just that they're frenemies they they want to be next to each other all the time it's like that brothers or sisters you know how we get on each other and but we still love them and yeah and so so if we think about kids with learning challenges what are some of the the tools that you think that they really need and what is it that early childhood educators can support with so you know the nonverbal child the Mm -hmm. the one who and I mean, at this young, we're not going to label it that, but the one who's very impulsive, not able to sit still. Yeah. What are the tools that you as an early childhood educator can use to help that child begin Mm -hmm. to come out of their shell and really kind of learn some sort of little strategies, even at a young age to kind of support their learning? Yeah. Um, I'll use another example. I've got a little guy in my class that is extremely impulsive and he's, He's either the kindest kid, Jekyll and Hyde, definitely. He's either the kindest kid that ever walked the earth, sweetheart, says such wonderful things, or he hates you, you're stupid, you're dummy. And we've gotten him. So he he used to push, you know, and hit a lot. We've calmed that down a lot. But I think that a really good early childhood person. And I, and I hope this translates into parents as well, as we learn more about parenting and we learn more about that child development for our own children, that we can sit back and say, well, what are their big strengths? So this little guy sitting at like circle time for, for a story is very difficult for him. And so that's fine. And we, so we started letting him go to a table that's very close to our circle and he could um, draw a picture. Sometimes we'd have something for him to do that relates to the story, but he's working on that. And the funny thing is now, instead of having to concentrate on being still and not touching my friends and all of this, he's working on his little drawing And he answers every question about it. He's now able to attend, pay attention more because he doesn't have to fit into this mold that he doesn't fit into. We've given him the freedom to learn. Yeah. And those are the examples that as teachers, you know, I I can remember being told, oh, you got, you got to catch the ones who aren't listening. You try to ask the question of the one that you think isn't listening. And more often than not, I used to find that those kids actually did have the answer They didn't look like what you would typically say is a good listener. So if we think of, you know, you go back to grade one and you think of crisscross applesauce, their eyes are on me, like all of those things. I would always try and ask the kid who was like looking at the ceiling and everywhere else. And I have two of those in my house, by the way, two of my three kids are that way where you think they're not listening. And then you ask a question and they will nine times out of 10 will give you the answer that you want. So I think that's a really good point is to remind people that just because the student or the child isn't sitting in what we typically see as the quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, people can't see them, but the (laughs) listening position 
-hmm. which would be, you know, sitting cross-legged or sitting properly in your chair, you know, with eyes on the person, I think having the opportunity to listen in other ways with other parts of their body are just as Mm -hmm. important. So I love that you gave that student the ability to draw a picture while they listened, you know, and what images are they getting while they're listening to the story? You know, those things are Mm -hmm. important. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just thrills my heart and all the other kids have figured it out. Oh, this guy, he needs to sit there, but I am capable of staying here so I can see the pictures better, whatever. Although it's funny, my little man, he'll, we'll get to a part of the store and he wants to see, check out maybe what the picture is or something. He'll get up, come up, look at it. And, oh, okay. And then he'll head back and, and do his thing, but he's doing great. I have another little guy, another one who struggles with sitting and, um, and he's neurodiverse, but he, he has a transition object that he'll bring from home. And very often it's a car. And so, of course, and so he'll sit down for circle and he'll have his car. And we've had occasions where that car's just turned into an airplane (laughs) going across the room. And so what we've done with him is said, um, I know you love your car, but we want to keep our friends safe. So you can make the choice. I'm fine either way. And it's funny how when I do that, I'll give two choices that are more acceptable to, you know, acceptable to me. And, but when I say I'm fine either way, so whatever you want to do, you can go with. And so I said, if you want to keep your car, that's fine. But it you have, you, you know how you have to hold it. And at first we were very specific. You know, it has to stay in your lap. And it can't go rolling across the floor, can't go flying across, but we're going to keep it there and keep our car quiet. If that's too hard or you're worried that maybe, and we all, this is funny because he'll really get concerned. Or if you're worried that maybe another friend will want to take it from you and they want to play with it, I can keep it for you. And I'll usually put it on, you know, that chalk tray, but it's not chalk anymore. It's a whiteboard. And I'll say, I can put it up here so you can see it but then I can protect it. And I know that no one's going to hurt it. And 80% of the time, he'll want it to be up on the tray um, to protect it. And, but sometimes they'll say, I'm going to keep it. And it's funny the other day he wanted to keep it and he had it for, you know, just a couple of minutes. Our, our sit down times aren't very long, but he, he came to me and he said, I think I think I'm not going to play with it. Well, like you could see he was getting more fidgety. He goes, and I don't want you to take it away. So can we put it on the, on the um, tray? And I said, of course, yes. But now think of that, that what a great big step that is with a neurodiverse child who is coming to the conclusion that I don't think I trust myself to play with this properly. So I'm going to have it put in a place where it's safe. And I know where it is. And I won't have it taken away from me. I, I was I, I was doing like all these little jumping up and downs inside of me when that happened. It's so fun to watch that. I and mean, it's fun as parents to watch it when we see our own kids do it. But it's fun as educators when we, yeah. when we see the children take the skills and the things that we're trying to give them and actively use them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those Absolutely. moments sometimes don't happen often and they don't happen in great big chunks. They tend to just happen randomly and they happen so quickly. You almost don't even know that they're happening. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, One of the important 
team members when it comes to neurodiverse kids is parents oh. the guardians of these children. So, you know, they're, they're the mm. guardians, they're the parents, they're the, 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 the keepers of these children really, right. They're right. They're the, they're the everyday, all day, hard and fast, 24, mm-hmm. seven, 365. Yeah. How is it that families, parents, guardians, whoever the, the adult is that is involved in this child's life, mm-hmm. how can they create a team, a collaboration with the childhood educators in a daycare and a kindergarten space? Mm-hmm. When they feel like things maybe aren't going quite as well, how do you create that relationship of openness and honesty, but still kind of, you know, maintain a, a connection there? It can be hard. So I'm just wondering if yeah. you have any advice for the parents on how to kind of advocate and create that, but also from the educator side of how can you know, we as educators create that open opportunity for families. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing an educator can do is understand that the parents are absolutely the second most important part of the team. The most important part of the team is the child. So it goes child, parent, teacher, and then kind of almost it spreads out then to where the teacher is working collaboratively with any specialist, whether it's speech or OT or PT or whatever you've got going on. So as a teacher, I always have that parent there. I always, and some once in a while, you get that parent that's like, oh, this little thing happened, you know, and they're kind of a nuisance with how much, you know what I mean? And I don't ever want to call them that, but it's just, they're very, very frequently and they can become overly demanding, not understanding what the parameters are of what I can do as a teacher or what a specialist can do within the district. So having a realistic point of view from the parents and you can get that in several places, but honestly, when you go to talk to your child's teacher and I would just talk to the teacher first time without the specialists and just ask those questions and you are free. So we're coming up at the end. My last day with kids is on the 25th. So we're down to just seven more school days with my kids and it's killing me, but <laughs> I am retiring at this year and it's making it even more hard than normal, I think. But anyway, so I, you can go before school starts and, and ask for a, you know, 20 minutes or whatever of your teacher's time and they have to give it to you. I don't know about Canada, but I'm pretty sure they do. And And so you have time to kind of ask those questions and gauge where your teacher is because teachers come in all kinds of personalities, right? And so some are more open to parent collaboration while others may be more closed for whatever reason. I think that's stupid anyway. And here I'm saying stupid, but parents are so important. But if you get that feel that, this teacher isn't going to be what's right for your child, you know, then you're going to have to start advocating for them. And so you can start talking to either the director or the principal or whatever and saying, these are my specific concerns. And then always I would come with, here's some answers I was thinking of. I'm sure you have some. And then keeping that open mind on how you're going to make that work. So if you have a a teacher that is maybe pushing some ideas 
on your child that you don't want them to have, or they're a very negative teacher. There are teachers who are will only concentrate on the difficult behaviors and not on the good behaviors that happen right. every day. So, you know, you can have that conversation. I know with my, one of my, uh, old, he's in high school now, one of my older grandkids, when he was in kindergarten, he had an older teacher that just, and he was very young. He was one of the youngest in his class, mm. but he was reading. He was so academically, he was ahead, but socially he was acting his mm-hmm. I have one of those. Yes. And so the teacher started making a check for every time he was bad, mm-hmm. bad. I'm doing my air quotes and he would come home with all these negative things, you know, Finally, I told my son, because we tried a few things to help with the teachers and with me being a kindergarten teacher at the time, you know, I had some insight. And finally, I said, Shy, my son's name is Shiloh. I said, got to get him out. And so they wound up putting him in a, a charter school that was immersive Spanish. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Cool. But when he had that challenge, all the behaviors went away. He just needed that extra challenge. So sometimes you might need to look at, maybe you do need to find a charter school or a private school or some support with maybe homeschooling or whatever is right for your child. And you've got to be, and and never be angry about it. Be matter of fact about it. Mm. Just be matter of fact when you go in and, and say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I've offered. I'm not sure, you know, where to go next and your principal or your director, whatever it is that you have at your school should be able to do some working. And oftentimes if uh, you say, well, I'm thinking of moving to a private school or whatever, you'll even get a better ear because they don't want to lose that attendance. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so important that if you feel like it's not a good fit, Mm -hmm. um, when you're able to, if it's possible making change. You can't always, I mean, right. you know, I think of where my kids are in the public system, you know, if the teacher's not a good fit for them that year, I really, I, I don't, I don't have another option. We have to try and manage, mm-hmm. but I do have to work with that classroom teacher and I do have to open the door and continue to create opportunity to advocate and to open communicate about, or to have open communication about what isn't working or what is working. And, you mm-hmm. know, my two older boys are ones in grade five and ones in grade seven. They're able to advocate for themselves somewhat. Right. My kiddo in grade five won't, I still have to do it for him. But, you know, my, my 12 year old will happily tell his teacher, you know what, that doesn't work very well for me. Can I do mm-hmm. it this way? Right. So I just think it's so important for families to start early with the communication with the teachers mm-hmm. and the educators. That's the other thing is I think that you can't wait for there to be a problem to start connecting with the classroom teacher. Right. And I think if you start out on that positive foot, right. You know, that's a great. And um, so even just a thing like a note and we're so excited that you're their Mm -hmm. teacher and whatever, but just remembering, you don't need to go and buy them, but just saying, I'm, I see you, I hear you. I appreciate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I know this is a hard job that goes a long way. And if you start out of the gate with that, that's really going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, going back though, I'm thinking about like talking to and advocating for your child. When I was on, when you were on my yep. podcast, you 
gave such great advice. And it was that if you couldn't find an advocate, that it's worthwhile to even bring some, a friend or family member to help, but a family member that is calm and isn't going to rile you up, but help you remain in in a good, healthy place as you're talking. And um, one who can listen and, and maybe surmise what they see. I hear this person saying this. I hear you saying this. I really don't think you're that far apart. I think yeah, that we yeah. can come together. If you've got someone like that, I loved that advice that, that you gave. And it's absolutely true. And I think, you know, it's it, the same goes for teachers too, though. I think that, or educators, whatever level you are at, you know, starting off with the family with something positive or not always mm-hmm. calling with the negative, sometimes just calling because things are going well, yes. or, you know, at drop off or pick up and you can say to the, give the parents something, just right. one tiny thing mm-hmm. that I think kind of lowers the guard for the parent. Mm-hmm. It allows the parent to let the educator in and that they get that the educator is seeing their child for who right. and what they are. And that's just so important. It's that communication piece back and forth, right? And I think too, one of the things I do, and I've, I did this in kindergarten, I've done this with my pre-K, is my, my parents frequently get emails with pictures of their kids working throughout the day or playing with a special friend or whatever. So we do releases, photo releases. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you are okay with your child being included in this type of a photo, and it's funny, I've never had a parent say no to that. I mean, they may not want it on, you know, the school's Facebook page or whatever, but or if you're having a party, you know, and they all want pictures of the party, especially yeah. during COVID when they couldn't come. And so I would make sure we're taking pictures. This is what we're going to do. And I would remind them before every party, even though they'd signed the release, I would still remind them before the party so that they had yeah. that in their mind. And I was very careful. So my families get photos of their kids probably once a week yeah. no, and, and, at least every other week for sure, but mostly once a week, they've got some kind of photo of their kid working on something or, or a skill that they're doing or, or just smiling with a friend, you know, and those are very, and that's really opened um, the doors of communication to so many uh, with my parents. I think it's hard when we drop our kids off at the more in the morning for school and we don't really know what they do all day. You know, they go into this building and we don't get to see it. And I mean, I've certainly heard of some daycares where, you know, there's cameras and parents can, you know, go in and watch and stuff. And I mean, that's fine, but there is something to be said for getting a little picture here or there of, you know, what's happening. I mean, my daughter's teacher randomly, and I think my daughter probably asked her to send it, but it doesn't matter. The teacher went to the effort of doing it, of, you know, took a picture of her. She was going across the monkey bars because she'd finally been able to get from one end to the other. Right. Yes. But just that her teacher took the time to send me that and said, Hey, look, like, and it's not an academic test task. She's in grade one. You know, it's not, she's not sending me a picture of her reading a book, but Robin was still proud of what she had done. And she wanted to share that with me in a moment where I can't be there. Right. So when teachers take that time, I think it, it reminds us as parents that our teachers really do truly care about our children and, and all teachers care about all the children. And and they, I mean, they wouldn't be there if they didn't, but yeah, it's those sort of things that allow families to kind of enter into a, a level of trust with, with teachers. And it's hard to do that, especially when our kids are struggling at school and, and admitting that and, and being present in that moment for that is hard mm-hmm. for sure. 
Well, and it can go the other way too. So I've gotten videos from parents of like a child is laying in bed and singing one of our classroom songs. I sing all day long. I've got a million songs, but they'll be singing a song, you know, that they learned at school and they'll take a quick little video of the child doing that and, and shoot it off to me in an email. And, you know, so it can't go both ways and it really opens a lot of emotions mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, it's a great thing. So it, so parents can do it too. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So there are any good um, websites, resources, books, things that you think parents should look at as they are entering into or starting to explore kind of early education for their children, mm -hmm. whether it's pre-K or kindergarten? My website. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a company, it's called Little Hearts Academy USA. And that it's that company that produces my podcast. So I have on there, you can, I have offerings for one-on-one -on -one coaching. You can join in on a group coaching. We've got all kinds of resources available for like how to have an amazing summer with your kids and how to set goals, summer goals for your kids. We've got workshops. I did a workshop in March about parent-teacher conferences and how to prepare and how to follow up and how to do all of that. And so that's at www.littleheartsacademyusa.com. My podcast is Imperfect Heroes, Insights into Parenting. And uh, we're on all of the, you know, podcasts. All the things. Things. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. So on each of them, there's Little Hearts Academy USA. And I also have Imperfect Heroes podcast on both of those. Thank you so much, DJ, for coming on and shedding some light for us on what early childhood educators do and how parents can work together as a team. Well, thank you. It's, it's so much fun talking to you. You're a fun person to talk to. So thanks for having me. Thanks so much, DJ. Take care. You bet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are looking for help and support in creating a roadmap to success for your child, through challenging times, contact me at accesstoeducation.com. I work with all families to help them build power and knowledge in understanding their child's needs and how to build success through advocacy. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Access to Education Toronto. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so together we can create your roadmap to success. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are looking for help and support in creating a roadmap to success for your child through challenging times, contact me at accesstoeducation.com. I work with all families to help them build power and knowledge in understanding their child's needs and how to build success through advocacy. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Access to Education Toronto. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so together we can create your roadmap to success.